Workers' Comp Matters, the podcast dedicated to the laws, the landmark cases, and the people that make up the diverse world of workers' compensation. Here are your hosts, Judd and Alan Pierce. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Workers' Comp Matters. My name is Judd Pierce. We are delighted to have a special guest with us here today, Dave Peterson. Dave is uh, formerly of Massachusetts, now of Austin, Texas, and you may know him as a producer of the Oscar-winning movie, Supersize Me. He has a new movie out that's in all the streaming uh, formats for your watching and entertainment pleasure. The title of the movie is Americond, and he is here with us today to discuss that movie and and what brought him to it and how it relates to the topic that we uh, discuss here on our show, Workers' Compensation. So with that, I'd like to welcome you, uh, Dave, to our program and introduce uh, my co-host, Alan Pierce. Hey, Dave. Thanks for joining us. I watched your film last night, and I was uh, I was struck by it. I, I found it uh, very informative and, to be frank, quite troubling. The basic premise is income inequality in the United States. Just very quickly, tell us exactly what that means in the context of your film. This is, this is a subject I've been following for a while. I really started digging deep into this during the uh, 2008 subprime crisis. And so through that, I started digging through numbers. You know, I started going through graphs like Berkeley, the University of Iowa. They were starting to do studies on income inequality from Reagan on. And I had just started noticing like a stark difference between like the rise of productivity and the lack of rise in wages. You know, there was like, it's almost like a, you know, twice, twice the amount. I think like product, productivity went up like 255% since then and wages 115%. So I started seeing numbers like that. And also, if you noticed in a focus of our film too, is we're starting to show like the resurgence of um, unions today and seeing the rise of labor. And that was also another stark indicator to me that things were really askew was when you looked at charts of the uh, decline of union memberships and the decline in wages were going hand in hand, steadily declines. One went down, wages went down, and then you started seeing that the gap in wealth income between, you know, the top one 10% to the bottom 90%. You know, I think you might've heard one of the stark figures in our, in our film was since 1980, $50 trillion of wealth has transferred from the bottom 90% to the top 1%. In, in the United States, I, actually, the I think it's the world now. But that's, I mean, it's, it, I mean, that stat always kills me. It's like when I look at that, my my jaw drops, and it's steadily getting worse. I mean, I think I don't know if you've been following, but we've seen some new stats. Like uh, the last quarter, what uh, I think the richest, the top forty five richest in the world gained another eight hundred and forty five billion dollars in wealth. You know, I mean, it's just so top heavy now. It's, I mean, it can't last. It can't last. It's unhealthy. Yeah, I, you know, and you talk about the market discrepancy between the very rich and the poor, as well as the uh, shrinking, the very significant shrinking of what's known as the middle class. I think it was Jesus who might have said, the poor will always be with you. But there was another uh, quote in your movie that struck me, and I'd like you to expand upon it. And that is that the evil part is the belief that when poor people get richer, it will harm the economy. Expand on that. How does that happen? That's from Nick Hanauer. Um, Nick's a fascinating guy. I don't know if you've ever listened to He has a great podcast, Pitchfork Economics, but, you know, uh, Nick's a great guy. He's a billionaire, 
first of all. So, you know, this guy, you know, talks a talk and walks a walk because he was one of the guys leading the fight for 15 in Seattle. He's a great guy. But that, what he's saying there is, if you don't pay people, like, I think his other line is like, if you don't pay people the money, who's going to buy the stuff? And uh, that's the problem we're seeing is just we're not seeing any rise in wages. So that's all comes down to the myth of the trickle-down economics from, you know, Donald Laffer and Reagan bringing in trickle-down economics saying that, okay, well, if we make rich people really rich, they're going to create more jobs and that money is going to trickle down, which we have seen that completely is a, a complete falsehood. You know, there's nothing to back it up. There's a reason why I can't get any conservative, I couldn't get one conservative economist or politician to appear in the film. There's a reason because they don't, they don't want to talk about these facts. And we've seen it's been a complete failure, trickle-down economics. It's a total fraud, total fraud. What gives me hope from watching the movie is that there are some people who are interviewed and you interview many people uh, across the country, which is remarkable. Tell us a little bit about Chris Malls and Derek Palmer early in the film and and, and what their influence is in in terms of giving some hope. Well, I can't say enough about those two guys. Chris and Derek are really, really fascinating, just great guys, really smart. They gave me hope through this film. I've been filming this. Like I said, I tried to start making this film in 2008. Then I tried to make it to get it out before the 2016 election. Couldn't get it done. People have not taken this topic very seriously, especially in the entertainment industry. It's sort of a bubble and people don't see the poverty outside those bubbles. But with Derek and Chris, we were filming this and it was a really depressing film. You think it's depressing now. I mean, at the end, you see we have the victory with the Staten Island uh, union vote, the Amazon facility in, in Staten Island. And we went down to Alabama to film that election. And, you know, we've, we had that in the film. And when we lost that election there, and I say we because I always feel like I'm part of this, but they, um, it was so depressing. I was really depressed. I'm like, I have this totally depressing film that's just going to make people cry and see no hope. And so luckily, Sean Claffey, my good friend and the director of the film was like, you know, let's just keep filming. You know, it was going to hurt us because, you know, you know, this is a thing we've been self-funding, everything, you know, it's all, you know, sweat equity in this project. And he was right. We kept filming. He's like, let's see what happens in Staten Island. We kept going. We kept going. And then boom, we won in Staten Island. And everyone, I was getting texts from other filmmaker friends are like texting me like, you got the ending of your movie. And I was like, so excited. I was like, good. I want some people to walk out with some hope and, you know, see some hope, you know, there. And I think they're driving it because I I like Chris and Derek because they're a little, you know, they're not the conventional union types that they see, you know, and they get a lot of backlash for that. You know, people don't like, you know, take them serious, but they're two very smart guys, like really smart. And they connect with young people, which I think is key now. I mean, you can see it with the Republicans now trying to stymie the vote for the, you know, they want to raise the voting age, things like that. It's because guys like this are getting out to the young people and saying, hey, look, unions are a good thing. You should join a union. And you're starting to see it when you're out there. Uh, they really connect with um, with the, the younger union members and, you know, possible union, union members. Uh, so they're great. They gave me hope because they, they didn't quit. They just kept learning. They lost in Alabama. They learned their mis- mistakes. They came to Staten Island and they fixed those mistakes. And they're still learning. But, yeah, those, those two are great. They just don't give up. And they're, they're just two amazing guys. You know, I, I, Judd and I were talking pre-taping of the show. We were talking about how does this topic relate to our general topic here of workers' compensation. In some ways, 
very small but meaningful ways, I think it does. We deal with people who are the working middle class, lower middle class, the, uh, for a large degree, the working poor. Those are the ones who are most likely to be injured in physically demanding jobs. And we see the inequality of pre-injury wage and post-injury benefit levels. But, you know, we've seen that decline over the last 30 years. And one of the major reasons for the decline is the shift in political power in the legislatures and probably most importantly, the decline of influence of organized labor. And whenever there has been workers' compensation legislation, either to enhance benefits or to keep benefits from going uh, backwards, uh, it has been organized labor that's been the principal driving force lobbying-wise and all otherwise all other ways, and with less and less people being employed under collective bargaining agreements, it seems that that is one of the major barriers uh, to stop the race to the bottom in our field and kind of turn things around. Do you see some hope that we will see an increase in membership of people that are working in under collective bargaining agreements and have the influence of organized labor behind them? Well, you know, we've been really following the um, the UPS and Teamsters strike. And I think that's a real bellwether for this is like, depending on how that goes, I feel that that might turn a corner. I like what Sean O'Brien's doing there. He's not laying down, you know, watching him testify in Congress. You know, you need that. You need that tough leadership and these guys that aren't going to back down because you guys see it. You guys are in the front line fighting for workers and you're seeing, I mean, it's overwhelming power and force against them. I mean, they, you know, I mean, we touch on it a lot about, you know, the federal society and how the, the courts have been, you know, I mean, they've been packed and it's, you know, it's crazy. Think about our Supreme Court alone. I mean, the Republicans have won one popular election since 92, but they put six justices on the Supreme Court. It's insane. You know, those guys really keep their eye on the prize of what they want. And I just see this, the UPS thing is, you know, I'm hoping this turns good for, for our side. Because with that, I think it'll, it'll raise people's hopes. And then you'll see UPS, you can see, you know, they're starting to leak into Amazon and get their drivers unionized and all that. So I think it sort of will have a, a ripple effect. So that's the one I'm really watching closely. And, you know, we're seeing strikes everywhere, which is great. You know, you're seeing people are fed up, you know, nurses, seeing, you know, everyone is kind of fed up and they're learning like here in Austin, though, by the way, I am moving to Portland, Maine, August 1st. So I'm relocating. Oh, oh great. Um, well, keep yeah, it weird but, in, uh, keep it weird in Portland. They could use it. <laughs> oh, we will. We will. Um, <laughs> But, you know, you can see like here, like I go around to like all these restaurants here and they're unionizing, like, you know, the pizza place down the street. You know, I walked in and they were like unionized and they were so happy. You can actually see the looks on their faces. I was like, congratulations. And I left them like a $50 tip. I was like, congratulations. I'm like, and watch my movie. And then uh, like the Starbucks I go to, which I rarely go to Starbucks, but I do. I only go to the ones that are, that are unionized. And so you're starting to see that, like you're just seeing like walkouts, like, hey, these conditions stink. We're out of here. You know, you're starting to see that in like in fast food restaurants and, you know, people like they're they're. I think people are fed up and I think we're getting to that point. And I mean, I know like what you guys do is like, I mean, you guys are fighting huge corporations too, just trying to get people what they're deserved, you know, what they're deserved under the law. And these people will fight to save every dollar. It's really crazy to me how it's just greed now. It's just plain greed. Well, let's uh, take a quick break from a word from one of our sponsors, and we will be right back here with uh, Dave Peterson. Uh, we're going to go back uh, into a little bit of the history of what brought us to this moment uh, when we when we return. So stay tuned. 
Mara's case is the number one law practice management solution tailor-made for workers' compensation firms. Streamline your practice with Mara's case's easy-to-use all-in-one platform. You're empowered to breeze through case and document management, workers' compensation forms, e-filing, calendaring, and invoicing. Learn how Mara's case can increase your firm's efficiency today. Visit Mara'sCase.com. That's M-E-R-U-S-C-A-S-E.com. Be the best resource you can for your Spanish-speaking clients with the Spanish Group's Legal Translation Service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same-day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured, and the Spanish Group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that, and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish Group translates in over 140 languages. Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. And we're back. Uh, we have Dave Peterson here with us to talk about his movie, Americond. And before the break, uh, Dave, we were talking about what may have led uh, you to this uh, making of this film, but also what led America to the point that we are could you get into both of those topics briefly for us, um, both what led you to this movie and uh, what, what led this country to this moment? Yes. Along with our movie, a good plug I can, I can mention is also um, you saw from watching the movies, we have Kurt Anderson in there who wrote Evil Geniuses. Highly recommend that book. That book really helped steer us in the later parts of crafting the film because he kind of laid out the blueprint of how we got here a little bit from the early 70s on. But for me, it started with, you know, I'd always been a fan of FDR and, you know, for the most part, LBJ, you know, he had a lot of faults, obviously. But, you know, I had started reading the Robert Caro, you know, biography on LBJ, which to me is like one of the greatest peaks works ever written. I started like, I said, you know what, I'm going to pop on and watch his 1965 war and poverty speech. And it really hit me. I was like, wow, what a powerful speech in 1965. And he declared war on poverty. And my original title of this film was called Poor. It was like how the, uh, how the war on poverty became a war against the poor. Um, and then we changed it because the America, which we will get into later, but I saw his speech and then so I started look extrapolating numbers and I looked, I'm like, okay, what was poverty in 1965? And I'm like, oh, it was around 25%, you know, high number in 1965. And then I looked, I was like, okay, what happened after he implemented all these programs in the Great Society? And I looked, and by the time Nixon has started dismantling them in like 1973, 72, he started dismantling all these programs, they basically had halved poverty to I think around eleven or twelve percent. So to me it was a great success what he was doing. You know, I mean, if it wasn't for Vietnam, like, you know, we would look at LBJ in a totally different light, you know, it, it just struck me because and then I started extrapolating data worse. I was like, OK, what was the minimum wage in 1965? And I remember looking, it was like $1.25 an hour. So then I started like crunching the numbers and and then I started talking to a friend of mine, Barry Ritzholtz, who's in the film from Ritzholtz Wealth Management, who wrote Bailout Nation. And I was talking to him, I was like, well, Barry, I was like, you know just extrapolating these numbers from the 1965 middle wage. And like, shouldn't it be like 21, $22 an hour now, if you did the math, he's like, yeah, it should be like 22 to $24 an hour should be minimum wage now. And, and that's what got me. And I was like, okay, this is, this is like not right. So, you know, and then I started extrapolating worse. I was like, okay, you could look like, and you look at now people are always like giving these young kids like, oh, well, you know, 
they can't afford houses. Like, well, they come out of school with a $200,000 debt when, you know, back in the 60s, you could buy a house for $9,000. You know, you can't do these things now. You can't raise a family on minimum wage. You just can't do it. And the, I mean, the other stark number, when you look at it, is like 44% of our nation, and it's in the film, is like 44% is making $10 or 25 cents an hour or under. 10.25 an hour or less. I mean, you can't raise a family. You can't do anything. It's like, it's it's impossible. And think about it. When you, the minimum wage hasn't gone up in nine years. And then when they raised it nine years ago, it was 25 cents. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think is is striking in, in my practice, and I'm sure Alan can, can attest to this, is that the, the impression that people would rather be on workers' comp than work. Or, you know, you, you say in the movie that... The, the, the people who are poor in this country are workers. And that's that's the the screwed up thing in all of this is that it isn't people who are just lazy or not willing to work. These are people who are actually working sometimes two, three jobs and still not making ends meet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you saw it, Judd, in the film. We had like, I think it's uh, over 70% of, of citizens achieving uh, receiving um, financial assistance are working full time over mm-hmm. 70%. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that whole welfare queen myth that Reagan came up with, you know, like, you know, they just want to sit and make their and it's and it's false. People want to work. I mean, you're always going to have people, you know, on the edges of society and that happens. You people that's just going to happen. But saying that people just want to receive no, people want to get up and work. They want to like strive cuz you're they're just that's being stuck on a treadmill in the same way. You know, oh, but cuz they get to do nothing, but they're not going to get any further. I mean, you know, they can't strive, but you know, they can't do it anymore because it's just the jobs, the, you know, good paying jobs just aren't out there, you know? And now, you know, with AI biting into it, it's going to get worse. I mean, I think we underestimated that in our film because AI is really on hyperdrive now. Right. Yeah. In fact, I was going to uh, follow up on that because one of the major points in your film is that the extreme wealth on both sides, you got George Soros on the left, you've got the Koch brothers on the yeah. right, and the billions of dollars they are actually, and with AI, it will even get worse, in able to convince people to vote against their own best interests. Aristotle, several thousand years ago, said, in a democracy, the poor will have more power than the rich because there are more of them, and the will of the majority is supreme. Where has that gone off track? Well, you see it. It's, you know, like I said, it's sort of the brainwashing of everything. You know, it's, like unions are evil. Like how long have they been demonizing unions? Like, oh, they're all corrupt, this and that. You know, it's 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 all about like they've convinced everyone that they're like, and I think it was Upton Sinclair, like back at the turn of the you know 20th century. I think he said, didn't he say like every American thinks they're like one good decision from being a millionaire or something like that? And I think that's the feeling. People are like, oh, you know, I'm just like one great idea from being Mark Zuckerberg. You know, and it's like, no, that's not how it works. And so they believe this. So they think it's like, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and, you know, you'll get there, you know, but you can't, you just can't do it. It's like, it's just not there. It's so far and few in between those people. They don't realize how rare that is. And, you know, you look at like these kids, what's the, you're, you're coming out immediately, you're $200,000 debt coming out of college. That's like a, I mean, what, a, I mean, I, I could imagine. Could you imagine coming out of college with that much debt? I mean, these kids, I'm like, I'm frightened for them. I feel for them. And I just don't know, like, I mean, you're already behind the eight ball, you know? Yeah, plus with a, with a degree in philosophy. 
Yeah. I, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the degree that you really should have, I think, and in, 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 to make a better life for yourself is a degree in philosophy. Well, going to or, the AI thing is interesting. Uh, and I was just, you know, because, you know, we, we're like, God, I think we really, you know, our numbers should have been about higher about how many jobs are you displaced. But the funny thing is no one cared until recently when you're starting to see, no offense to you guys, but you're seeing like robot lawyers, AI, like, and like AI taking the job of white collar jobs. And now they're like, oh, well, maybe AI isn't that great of an idea. Right. Like we thought they were just going to, the guy is going to, you know, give, who's going to deliver my burger to me is going to be a robot. And that's fine. Yeah. Senator Schumer yesterday said that he'll have a bill be on the White House desk, not in months, but in weeks. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's gotten to Congress that it's they could they could be robot congressmen uh, soon. So why don't we take a quick break and we'll be right back with uh, our special guest, Dave Peterson. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network, available wherever podcasts are found. Welcome back. As we wrap up with our guest, uh, Dave, I want to talk to you about the title of your your film, uh, Americond. And when I saw that, before I really knew much about the movie, much less not having seen the movie, I thought I would be seeing a more overt uh, depiction of how the population of the United States, maybe the the poor, the working poor, the lower middle class, have been conned, have been deceived. And I didn't see that explicitly spelled out in your movie. It was seemed to be the subplot. So where have we all been conned and how have we been conned? Well, first of all, going with the overtness of it all is I didn't really want it like you know, all right, we're stuck with a two-party system here. You know, that's just how it is. And I, like, I'd love to just throw all the blame on the Democrats, but I can't. I mean, you know, I've been independent since I graduated college I, in 92. I was a Democrat and I campaigned for Jerry Brown in college. And I remember, like, when Clinton took over, I was like, wow, this, this guy's, like, campaigning on cutting welfare just to pull Republican voters and, you know, and he did all those things. He could have just reneged on everything and got a lot, like, said he was to do it, not do it like Republicans usually do. I was like, why not do that? But, you know, this is a guy who created NAFTA. Like, you know, so none of these guys, like, you know, Obama even said it. I've said it about Obama. I'm like, there's not much difference between Obama and Reagan, you know? There's, it's a, to me, it's a thin line between those guys, the neoliberals and neoconservatives, a thin line. So I didn't want to cast blame just on one political party there there's a lot of blame to go around you know hence the conservatives i think i would take shoulder a bigger part of it but you know they've been complicit you know because look at some of these democratic senators sitting there they're just piled of money getting tons from lobbyists you know um it's so that to me you know i, I couldn't we couldn't really take a side you know a lot of people want to think oh you guys are just communists this and that and it's like no it's like i i made a purposely poach to like put pictures of people like Biden and Obama and say they're part of the problem too. It's like, it's not just one party, you know? That's the, that's and, the other know, thing. 
I'm sorry. That's the other thing that struck me, Dave, is that there were quotes and film clips from, I think, everybody from LBJ to Nixon to Carter, nothing from Ford. We had some Bush, Clinton and Obama. We didn't, I don't believe Trump's name or his image was in your film at all. Was that purposeful? You know, Alan, it's hard to say. You know, that's, you know, I've never asked Sean, the director, that. I've never asked because we never had that. Yeah. I, I, I can't really honestly tell you what was purposeful. It might have been. Sean's really smart. And Christopher Sewer, who was our other co-writer on it, that might have been a pur- purposeful thing. But it's a, it's a good point, Alan. I wish I could answer you on that, but I'm not quite sure. We, well, there are clips of him there. There are clips of him, like, at the White House, you know. Yeah, there was the insurrection of a clip. But it seemed to me that the underlying message is if this doesn't reverse itself or it's already started, that we are going to get a Trump. We're going to get an authoritarian or we're going to get a revolution. And I and I, I would suspect the people behind the insurrection and the uh, election fraud issue, in a sense, was a revolution. And I didn't, you know, I was expecting maybe the last half of the movie or the end of the movie would bring us up to the current political state with with him running again in, for 24 and the four years that, uh, that he was in office. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was wondering if this was all just going to be the subliminal message. And I was well, waiting yeah, for I mean, it, it kind of is. It kind of, I think mm. we, it does set off a subliminal message is it, it, it does. It's like, I mean, we're, I think we're at a, like, it's kind of a scary point, you know, and people, I've been warning people about this for 20, almost 30 years. I'm like, we're heading this way. We're heading this way. And people just laughed at me. I'm like, it's becoming more and more, everything's shifting to the right more and we it keeps going. And now it's like, we're on an express elevator that way. And I mean, it's scary. Think about it. Look, I just saw like the Trump poll numbers, like he's polling in the Republican primaries at 56%. You know, you're seeing guys come on saying, oh, if he murdered someone on live on TV, I'd still vote for him. I mean, it's insane. But he, I mean, he's the ultimate con man. He's sort of like the embodiment of it all, though, isn't he? It's like, you know, these guys have lied and cheated and conned their way into saying, you know, oh, if you just, if you, if we keep coming taxes to the poor. I mean, you saw the segment we have in the film too, where we're showing all the corporations that aren't paying taxes, but are getting rebates, you know? Mm, like, right. Those checks were huge. Yeah. $137 million to Amazon. You know, the, the average billionaire pays an, a tax rate of 8%, 8%. But, but on the, on the, on the contrary side, these billionaires will say, we're such philanthropists. We give so much money of ours away to charitable causes that it equates to us paying in taxes. What would you say to that argument? It doesn't because that's one that's so laser focused. And it's like, and one, it's, it's, I think you guys might know this too. A lot of those organizations are so top heavy. So, so much of the money is going to salaries, this and that. Like, all right. For example, if you want to, if you want to level a playing field, if you just took like Walmart, like Walmart and Amazon and told them to pay everyone $25 an hour, that would change things overnight in this country. And you know what? They wouldn't, they, it wouldn't affect their profits in the slightest, you know, maybe a tick, but it's nothing. It's just pure greed. I mean, you could change these. For example, it was great. I was actually watching, walking in Burlington, Vermont. And I was walking by the Burlington Bagel Factory and I was looking at like signs, what people are paying. And it said, starting at $25 and up, small business. And I've been saying this, like the fight for Seattle, the fight for 15 Seattle was a big deal because they were like, if you pay these people more than $15 an hour, everyone's going out of business. And know what's happened in Seattle? The businesses are all thriving because now these workers can afford to live closer to work. 
They they send there's less turnover and they're spending like people forget poor people don't hoard money like billionaires. Billionaires are just they're money hoarders. You pay people more money, it goes directly back into the economy and everyone rises. The like businesses thrive. It's just pure greed. There's no way around it. There's no way other way around to look at that. It's just pure greed. Because if you pay people more, that money goes right back out into the economy. And I think you guys know that. I mean, it's just, you know, people just don't realize it's really simple. This isn't like, you know, this isn't hard stuff to figure out. Well, you know, as they as uh, they say, Gordon Gecko said, greed is good. And as somebody said in your film, the only sole goal of a corporation is to make money. This is it? And, hey, and Milton that, Friedman and Milton Friedman and and that one whole of the worst of, people ever. He's really kind of the villain of the film. I don't yeah, know if you yeah, got that, yeah. but he's always been my villain. He's a hard one of the most worst horrible human beings that could ever be conceived. Him and Mitch McConnell, like, oh, if you could just launch them into the sun, they would have been that would have been great. Well, David, we could talk about this probably for another hour yeah, or two. And, oh, and, I know, uh, I know. <laughs> but I, I urge our, our listeners who have an interest in workers' comp, that means you have an interest in a social safety net, a social uh, insurance and the betterment of society. So even though this is not directly on point, it overlaps sufficiently that uh, this is a movie that you really ought to see. So mm-hmm. I really want to thank you for sharing a half hour with us and uh, look forward to your next next venture. Thank you, Alan Judd. It was great. It was great. Yes, Jennifer says great things about you. So, <laughs> well, thank She you. is a terrific leader of the Workers' Injury Law and Advocacy Group, which we're so active with. And Dave, uh, once again, thanks so much for being on our show. And uh, to those of you who are listening, yep. go out and make it a day that matters. Goodbye. Goodbye.